Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com give. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Always good to see you. Uh, by any chance, do we have any Packer fans in the house? Yeah, hey, I'll, I'll take it. Come on, me and one other person. Oh, boo. Uh, guys, I got to start with an apology because when I put my shirt on today, I was like, um, I think my wife gave me a small. So, uh, oh, Lord, I'm filling these things out. Guys, 150 years ago, during the gold rush days of the 1800s, there was a man living in San Francisco by the name of Joshua Norton. It's a guy with a lot of money, made some speculations in the rice market, and unfortunately lost everything. And not only did it destroy, destroy him financially, but tragically it destroyed his mind. The guy went completely delusional. Just one example of how delusional he got. In 1859, he published a proclamation and declared himself emperor of these United States. And he found a sword, stuck a plume in his hat, found a cape, and then paraded through the streets of San Francisco in a very colorful costume. Now what's interesting is the people of San Francisco uh, actually embraced him. Whenever they would have events, whenever they would have different things going on, they would give him tickets, they would invite him to opening night. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were many of them who ex- allowed him to uh, collect a small tax and issue his own currency. So most people kind of just went along with him. Uh, but of course, for Joshua Norton, this was more than just a game. This was more than just something he wanted you to go along with. I mean, he was delusional. And so he promoted himself from emperor of these United States to also the protector of Mexico. And uh, throughout his life, made a bunch of different proclamations, different decrees. Some were taken seriously, others were not. He uh, ended up firing Abraham Lincoln. He dismissed the Congress. Uh, He charged a $25 fine to anyone who referred to his imperial city as just Frisco. And uh, the one proclamation that actually did get some traction and did end up taking place is multiple times in his life, he made the proclamation that a bridge needed to be built there in San Francisco. And of course, that didn't happen until years later, but it did happen. And if you were to read up on the San Francisco Bay Bridge or you were to Google his name, you'll see the attachment, how... Uh, he played a role. Well, when he died in 1880, it would be assumed that a one-man circus like this would maybe draw two or three people to his funeral. Maybe his mom and his dad, you know, would show up or his children. Uh, but estimates were that there was anywhere from 10 to 30,000 people who showed up to pay their respects. Newspapers and magazines all over the country ran front-page articles on how the emperor had died. And so he lived in this delusion of grandeur. Well, it's interesting to me how throughout history, whenever we talk about positions or title or rank, all of us are fighting for something big, right? All of us want a title, whether it's boss or employer or parent, like we want titles that give us a little bit of power and a little bit of influence. And of course, in the extremes, you've got the kings and the emperor and people looking to be president of something. My brothers and I, when we were young, we would fight for champion of the universe. 
Usually it started, you know, champion of the home and then it's champion of the United States and it just kept growing until it's finally champion of the universe. Well, I started thinking this week about all the amazing titles I've held in my life and I could think of like two. Uh, once when I was at North Central University in Minneapolis, I held the prestigious title of president of my freshman class. And then I ran for president during my sophomore year and I lost. I'm still convinced I could have made North Central great again, but that was their loss, right? And then during my school years, I was in basketball and soccer and was never really all that good, spent a lot of time on the bench. And that's because while many of you were in sports and you were practicing your jump shot and you were determining how you could get better, I was studying a holy book called the Bible with all due humility. Uh, actually, I'm only half joking. The fact is I was in a program, most of you probably never heard of, called Bible Quiz, uh, in which we had to memorize large portions of the Bible. I have a bunch of trophies to prove it from back in the day. I was so excited. Those were, those were good times. Uh, if you've never heard of Bible Quiz, you memorize a lot of scripture, and you have to have some serious athletic skills. You combine those two, and it's just, that's how it is. Um, but whether it's academics or sports or Bible Quiz or some sort of position in government or at your workplace— all of us want positions with decent titles. Everybody likes to win. Everybody likes to have a little bit of influence and a little bit of, of, of power. Well, throughout the ancient writings that make up our scriptures, you'll notice that the authors use literally hundreds of different titles to try to describe God. Hundreds of titles they attribute to the God of the universe because one title isn't enough. He's too big for that. And if you've ever read the Christmas story, then you'll know when Jesus was born, several titles were given to him. Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Savior has been born. But what's interesting is in the Christmas story, there are multiple titles also given to other individuals that we don't focus a whole lot on. And that's because the Christmas story, whether it's something we read in the scripture or some poem form of it, or maybe we read about it in some book and somebody expounds on it. The Christmas story is actually a collection of stories and a collection of different narratives that are unfolding at the same time. And a really educated man by the name of Luke actually writes a narrative about the birth of Jesus. And before getting into the birth, he gives us the context surrounding Jesus' birth. Here's what he writes. He says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, I'm guessing you know this, but Augustus is a really big deal in, in history. Uh, his father uh, was a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. He's actually the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Augustus was the first official emperor of the Roman Empire. He was very powerful, and he was very secure in himself because everywhere he went, uh, historians tell us that he carried around an American girl doll, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> All right, his birth name was Octavian, but the Roman Senate decided to change it to Augustus because Augustus means worthy of worship or great one. He was the emperor for 40 years. During his reign, the empire literally doubled in size. In fact, he reigned and ruled everything you see in, in color on the map. This was roughly the size of the United States. 
in a time period before planes, trains, and automobiles. Communication was difficult. They didn't have computers. They didn't have telephones. Now, to be fair, they did have tell a woman, which was the fastest way to spread information. But, oh, that was bad. That was so dumb. So dumb. So dumb. Now, here's the deal. I know it's still somewhat early, and uh, it's hard to engage our minds. And I know that talking about something historical like this can kind of be difficult to wrap our minds around. And and I, I get that. And we're not going to spend all morning dealing with history, but I do want to just kind of push into you this idea that when Jesus was born, Augustus is ruling this massive empire. And he's a very arrogant individual, very proud. In fact, during his reign, Halley's Comet passes over Rome, and he claims that it is the spirit of Julius Caesar entering into the heavens, and that Julius Caesar is a god, which is amazing, because if Julius Caesar is a god and he's the adopted son, it means he is the son of God. So he has this very inflated image of himself. He's got lots of territory to oversee. That's a very expensive venture to keep up. And so he taxes the Roman citizens like crazy, forces many of them into poverty, but eventually kind of slows down. He starts treating people with kindness and it gets to the point where the Roman citizens actually view Augustus as a god. He was very aware of it. He writes in an autobiography of sorts, and something that we know as the deeds of the divine Augustus. He writes this about himself. He says, 21 times I was named emperor. 55 times the Senate decreed that sacrifices be made to the immortal gods on my behalf. He talks about being Pontifex Maximus, which is the highest ranking position in the Roman religion. He says citizens would make prayers unceasingly on his behalf in different areas. And just a very, very humble guy, a lot like Kanye West. (laughs) Well, here's, again, what I just want to focus on in the midst of all this historical stuff. Augustus is ruling a massive empire, and he's got a lot of power. Now, this is a time period before Google Maps, so it's hard to keep track of how many people and, and the size of your empire. And so what he implemented was this census uh, that needed to be taken every five years to keep track of the population. And he always had a concern that if a certain portion of the population would rise up and there'd be a rebellion, it could take months, if not years, to actually get to that portion of the empire. And so the way he kept control was that he would appoint these puppet kings to rule over certain regions. And basically what they would do was they would implement the policies that he had in place. They had this illusion of control, but they were really ruling on his behalf. Well, a king that he chose to rule one specific province or region was a guy by the name of Herod. Okay, we know him in history as King Herod. You may remember studying his campaign slogan, bringing sexy back, them other boys don't know how to act. (laughs) Actually, the way he did become king was he had made some serious, very generous donations to Rome, and that played into their political decisions, and they ended up making... Herod, king over a territory known as Judea. This is where the Jewish people live. This is where Jesus was born. Okay, so just to keep our our facts straight, we've got Augustus ruling the entire Roman Empire, large and in charge. Over one of the many provinces was a guy by the name of Herod. He was overseeing the province of Judea. Luke starts out his manuscript by talking about Augustus. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, writes a manuscript as well, but he starts out talking about Herod. Here's how he starts out. He says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, Herod fits the stereotype we would have of kings. 
Probably the closest comparison is if we would, in our minds, imagine King George. Prince George of Cambridge. Right? Born into a family of wealth and respect and notoriety. You'll remember his birth was celebrated all around the world. He grows up and he's accustomed to large living spaces and palaces. Everywhere he goes, people adore him. They treat him with dignity. That was Herod. Herod had a very noble birth. He grew up and from a young age was leading armies. The home he grew up in, there were politicians coming and going all the time, so he learned to be an amazing politician, which is interesting because when he was appointed as this puppet king over Judea, the Roman Senate realized pretty quickly that, hey, this guy's actually an amazing politician. And so they gave him the title King of the Jews. He held on to that title for 40 years. There's so much we could say about Herod. Uh, we could literally spend all day today talking about his building uh, adventures. He was very good at architecture and getting things built, uh, but probably the most ambitious of his building projects would be uh, the temple. Because he knew that he would gain more control and more influence with the Jews if somehow he connected himself with the center of their worship. And so he ends up building this temple 10 times larger than the original, so big that the stones of this massive temple are still visible today. We know them as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Okay, that's the backdrop for Jesus' birth. Augustus ruling an empire, Herod ruling a region, people being oppressed, politicians fighting for more and more power, more and more control. Now contrast that with the birth of Jesus. He enters our world with very little fanfare, relatively speaking. He's born into a peasant family. It's not an exaggeration to picture a refugee family and to say that is literally what Jesus was born into. The first title that he really had placed upon him was the title Mamzer, which is a reference to a child whose parents aren't married. So in the English language, we would say illegitimate child or bastard, even though we don't use the terms regularly. But that was Jesus' first title. And of course, we know from all the nativity scenes, he's wrapped in rags, he's in some sort of cave-like structure. He's surrounded by animals. And it's so interesting because hundreds of years earlier, the prophets had said, a savior will be born, a king will enter our world, a prince is coming, and nobody pictured this kind of entrance into the world. And so the birth of Jesus introduces us to a new definition of power and to a new way of thinking. The definition of power that we're used to is the kind of power that gets things done through force or through control. So if you run a company, if you have a business, if you're trying to rule your children, it's because I'm the parents, because I said so. It's get this done. And even in the best scenarios, when you are in a position of power, you can somehow use that power, whether it's through healthy methods or unhealthy, to get whatever you need done. Right? In, in our world, the United States is considered the most powerful nation that exists. And the reason for that is because we have a military budget of over $600 billion. Now, to give you perspective, the next 10 most powerful nations combined, their military budgets, don't equal ours. And I think I speak for all of us when I say, now, I'm grateful to live in a nation that cares about protecting its citizens. Right? I'm not anti-government. I'm not anti-politics or anti-military. Most of you know I lost a brother in Iraq. 
So I'm definitely not anti-military, but I do think it's important when we start to think about King Jesus and the kingdom he introduces us to, that we know it is a very different kingdom than what we've become accustomed to in our world. Power looks differently. Success looks different. Influence looks different. And we need to remind ourselves of that because I think it's easy for us to think about our own kingdoms. All of us have one, right? Our kingdom is our family. It's our home. It's our, wherever we have influence, whenever our will gets done. So for many of us in our place of employment, it's, in some ways it's our kingdom because we get our will accomplished at least in a small setting. And it's easy to think about the kingdom of God as like this glorified version of our own kingdom. So we're nice, but he's nicer or nicest, right? We, we, we can make things happen, but he, he can make everything happen. We know you, you should treat people with, with love and with kindness. Well, he's all love and he's all kind. But we do have to remind ourselves that his kingdom in many ways is a complete opposite of our own kingdom. It's not just a supersized version. It's not just a new and improved. It's, it's completely different. Towards the end of his life, Roman soldiers come to arrest him. Some of you will remember this. We focus on this during Good Friday services or somehow, sometime around Easter. Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, but his disciples, his closest followers, believe he's going to be an earthly king. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom. They still haven't kind of comprehended everything, and so they decide they're going to fight on his behalf. In fact, one of them, Peter, picks up a sword and goes to kill one of the soldiers, and he takes a swipe at him, and instead of killing him, he just chops off the guy's ear. Apparently, he learned how to kill by hunting with Dick Cheney. Well, Dick, or, uh, Jesus rebukes him, Dick and Jesus, same people. Uh, Jesus rebukes him. Later on in the, in the same chapter, Jesus tells his followers, he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus is not saying that my kingdom is up there in the clouds somewhere in la-la land. He's just saying my kingdom operates so different. My way of doing life, my, my definition of power, it's just different than yours. God's kingdom actually does exist on this earth. Anywhere that God's will is done, anywhere that God's way and his desire is being accomplished, that's the kingdom of God. God's kingdom exists inside you. Everywhere you go and you implement his will, you're bringing his kingdom. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So when Jesus says my kingdom isn't of this world, he's not saying it's up there in the sky somewhere. He's saying, hey, my kingdom is completely different in how it operates. In Bath, England, a couple thousand years ago, there was this hot springs that formed this spa at what was a Roman worship center. And over the years, archeologists have done lots of different digs in this location and they've come across multiple tablets um, tablets that have prayers written on them. And the tablets have become known to us, it's what the archaeologists have named them, as curse tablets. It's because by far the most common form of prayer written on these were, were curses. Someone would pay to have a prayer written down. They'd pray to a god or a goddess and they'd say, this person hurt me, I want you to pay them back. I want their life to be miserable. I'm not making this up. I want to read one of the prayers that someone had paid to have uh, prayed over a guy named Eucherius who was obviously in 
the chariot races. His prayer goes like this. I invoke you holy angels and holy names. Tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, and chatter you chariots, the charioteer, and all of his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. And then he just goes on to get more and more forceful. The guy forgot to take his medication, of course. It's like, this is, this is intense. But can you imagine praying curses like that over politicians? Or, or over teams that you want to see lose? Oh, Lord, let them play like little girls. Let them embarrass themselves. Let them be trampled on in utter defeat. <clears throat> May it be so, Lord. Well, there is another kind of tablet with prayer written on it. It's a bless my enemy tablet. And the prayer goes something like this, Eucherius hurt me badly. Would you deliver me from my resentment? Would you help Eucherius to find genuine repentance? Would you forgive his sin and mine? Would you heal our relationship? Now, how many bless my enemy tablets do you think they found in all of the digs there in Rome? Zero. People don't pray those kind of prayers to Roman gods like Zeus. And Bacchus. No, what they do is they pray prayers of opposition against their enemies because that's the way of our kingdom. That's the way life operates. And it's into that way of thinking and it's into that kind of world that a baby is born who grows up and begins to introduce society to a different way of thinking. And one of the most famous talks he ever gave gave Jesus taught you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say love your enemies pray for those who persecute you Jesus continually made it clear that his kingdom was nothing like the kingdoms of this world he continually made it clear that our hope is not found in any version of a government in any specific politician our hope is in a kingdom that is not of this world into a way of doing life that is in opposition to how so many of us naturally live. It's the reason that when he heard his disciples arguing about who was going to be the greatest among them, he had to interrupt them and he challenged them. Here's what we read. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is a reference to himself. He said, here's how everybody else operates. Here's the titles they care about. Here's the, the, the positions of power they fight for. But among you, it's going to be different. Because I'm a king, I'm a prince, and I've come to pour out my life on behalf of others. Now, in our world, there's lots of different titles and symbols that we have to represent power, and that's okay. That's how we operate. Crowns, presidential seals, gavels that represent, when hit by a judge, some sort of authority and power. Well, the kingdom of God is represented by a completely different symbol. For 2,000 years, it's been represented by a cross. And so as we make our way toward Christmas, it's important to remember that the true significance of Jesus' birth is actually revealed by his death. You can't separate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. Because from the moment he enters this world to the 
day he left this world, he is pouring himself out to others. He is a king that is serving his subjects. The cross is a symbol of love. It's a symbol of humility. It is a symbol of brokenness. The cross is a sacrificial symbol. Now, I know it's the Christmas holiday season. We're, we're not in Good Friday. We're not at Easter. But I want to talk for a moment about the cross because I'm confident that in 2016, we'll never fully make the connection of its significance. We'll never truly appreciate it probably the way we, could, we should because of our culture and just because of it's just become such a common image for us. But for the first couple thousand years of recorded history, the way people thought about the gods was that the gods were against humans. That, that, that God was always mad. He was always waiting to kind of pour out his anger. And so people were always nervous of where they stood with God. If they were to get sick, if natural disaster were to hit, it was because the gods were angry. And so people would continually put sacrifices together and make offerings and try to appease the gods so that there would be peace with God. And then 2,000 years ago, the God of this world said, all right, You've got it all wrong, so I'm going to enter your world. I'm going to show you what I'm like. I'm going to have skin like you. And so Jesus walks our planet, and for 33 years, through his words, through his actions, through his interactions with individuals, he continually showed us what God is like. And the apex, the pinnacle, the peak of where we see God is in the final moments of his life where he's hanging on a cross pouring himself out for the sins of the world. Now, ever since I was a kid, I think I just naturally have a cynicism to me. Uh, I've always struggled with the whole concept of the cross. It's not because I want to. It's just, if I'm honest with you, I just wonder sometimes, why didn't God just say, I forgive everybody? Right? Why, didn't, why didn't he do what governors and presidents can do? Just give pardon to everybody. Everybody's forgiven. No big deal. Let's move on. Why couldn't God just do that? Well, there's a part of God we don't talk a lot about, and that is the fact that God is justice. He doesn't just implement justice. He is justice. And so wrongdoing and evil and sin have to be dealt with. You and I could dismiss it. You and I could say, ah, you're forgiven. No big deal. Let's move on. But pure justice has to deal with it. And since we were made in the image of God, there is a part in us that is just, which is why when we see a horrific tragedy unfold and then someone gets kind of a slap on the wrist, like, hey, they, they don't even come close to receiving the consequences they should have. There's this, like, you know, outcry. People are ticked off because we say, man, that, that should be dealt with. Well, God is just, and so he can't just dismiss sin. He's got to deal with it. And in God's divine way of thinking he says somebody has to die for sin there has to be a punishment but this is where grace comes into the picture he says i'll enter your world and i'll die on your behalf and so the cross is this amazing picture of the justice of god being poured out because somebody has to die that's how big of a deal sin is and yet the grace of god being poured out at the same time because he said i will die in your place my cynicism surfaces here. It says, okay, it feels like a cartoon, like a fairy tale. Because 
if the ancient writings that make up our scripture are true, right, if the individuals who wrote this stuff are, are giving us accurate information, then all I need to do to be forgiven of sins once and for all, all I need to do to be rescued from that is to kind of put, not kind of, just I need to put my faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. I need to say, hey, God, enough of my kingdom. I choose for Jesus to be my king, and I choose to enter into his kingdom. I believe that I'll never be able to make things right with God on my own. I I believe I'm never going to have enough goodness in me to ever be at peace and fully reconcile with the God of this world. And so I put my faith in God. It just feels so easy, but I think it's God's way of saying to us, yes, it's all me and it's not you because the kings of this world expect something from you. If you want to have favor with the king in this world, you need to bring something. You need to offer something. You need to somehow make peace with them. But in my kingdom, I do all the work. I don't expect something from you. I offer something to you. It's why... Years after the death of Jesus, the apostle Paul writes a letter to a buddy of his by the name of Titus, and he references Jesus in this way. He says, for the grace of God, that's how he refers to Jesus, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. God wants to save you, and he wants to save me. And this is a great time of year to remind ourselves of that. When Jesus was born, an announcement was made, a savior has been born. This is good news for all people. A savior has been born. And the reason we need to hear that is because sometimes we think what God wants from us is for us to feel condemned and for us to feel guilty and for us to feel shame. We think that God has a to-do list for us. We think he's up there in the clouds saying, you better watch out. I'm I'm mad at you, but no, God wants to save us. He wants to liberate us. He wants to free us from the kingdom of this world. He came to free us from having to pretend like life is okay all the time, and he saved us to being comfortable in our own brokenness. If you're not comfortable in your own brokenness, if you're not comfortable admitting your faults and your failures, and you have this part of your life that you just want hidden from everybody and nobody ever knows about you, You probably don't fully understand the grace of God because he came to save you from that. He came to free us from having to constantly seek the next rung on the success ladder and find our value and our worth and our importance in that. And he saved us to humility. So even when we do earn the next title and we do earn the next position, we see it as a way of serving people better rather than them serving us better. He came to free us from feeling like we always need a title and we always need a promotion in order to have some sort of identity, and he saved us to finding our identity in him. He came to free us from having to impress people all the time, and he saved us to simply reflect his greatness to this world. I love the Christmas season, and I love it because it's such a great time to refocus my mind and heart, because everywhere we go this season, we're going to have images of Jesus. None of them really probably even look like Jesus, but there's this reminder that that a Savior did come into our world, and a king has been born with a different type of kingdom than anybody has ever seen before. And the reason this is important is because, if I'm honest, the last 11 months of my life, not meaning to, but just in the chaos of life and things that are unfolded, I've kind of climbed back onto the throne of my life, and I've started doing life my way. I'll become aware of what God wants me to do and I'll kind of dismiss it and I'll still do what I want to do. 
There are many, many days, if I'm just purely honest, that I want to rule my life and I want to be in charge and I want to wear the crown. I want to introduce you to a piece of equipment today called the Quadro Tracker. All right, this is just a hollow piece of plastic with an antenna and uh, it's been sold over the years. It's uh, supposed to be able to find certain things that it's been programmed for. So if somebody had maybe traces of marijuana on them today, it would just kind of, oh, okay. I think that's where Pastor Ben usually sits. Uh, it's just supposed to go in that direction. Absolute true story. This is known as the ADE651. During the Iraq war, almost 40,000 of these were sold uh, to the Iraqi government. It was supposed to pick up on bombs. And so they would go over buses and they would go over cars looking for bombs and then they didn't find any. And so the cars would move on or the buses would move on. And sure enough, thousands of people ended up dying because these things were junk. Uh, Iraq ended up spending uh, $38 million on these. And uh, sure enough, they did discover as a hoax, the guy who was kind of the mastermind of it ended up going to prison. But when I read that story uh, earlier this year, I, I thought, man, what a joke. Like, come on, how can people not know this is a hoax? Really? Some of the smartest men and in, in, in women came to believe that this really would do something when it was nothing more than, than, than a joke? But if I'm honest, I'm constantly deceived. I'm deceived into thinking that Jesus is my king and I'm a part of his kingdom, but I'm sitting on the throne and I don't think anything about it. And so Christmas is like this great reminder that if Jesus is my king, it means I gotta step off the throne and I gotta let him enlarge his territory in my life. He needs, I need to allow him to chisel away at who Dave Nelson is and I need to give him more and more reign. Which means when I become aware of what he wants me to do, even though it may be difficult for me, I step back and say, okay, God, do it in me. It's easy to have this mentality as an American living, uh, living in 2016 that to be a part of God's kingdom, we need to simply pray a prayer. God, I put my faith in you, and now my sins are forgiven once and for all. And I do believe God does that, and he, he, he knows the sincerity of our heart. But I'll just tell you, this term we use, salvation, isn't like this one moment where we just pray a prayer and everything's good. No, salvation is this ongoing process. God's constantly trying to save us from the kingdom of this world and our way of thinking and our way of operating and introduce us to his kingdom. I need to constantly be saved from my need to retaliate every time someone hurts me. I need to constantly be saved from wanting to please people all the time. I need to constantly be saved from having to have the last word. I need to be saved from my cynicism and my stereotypes and my prejudice. I need to let God keep enlarging his kingdom in my heart. I need to be saved from constantly thinking this world is all there is. God wants to save me and he wants to build and expand his kingdom and wants to free me. And the way he does that, the way he brings me from the kingdom of this world into his kingdom is by calling me to pour out myself to others. And so let me close with this question. How does your life look different because Jesus is your king and you're part of his kingdom? Like if he wasn't your king and you weren't a part of his kingdom, what would be different about you? See, to some extent, every one of us should be able to point to an aspect in our life where we say, or really multiple aspects in our life where we say, 
In that aspect of my life, I pour out myself, I sacrifice on behalf of others, just like King Jesus has done for me. Because I'm a part of his kingdom, I sacrifice my pride and I work towards forgiving someone who's hurt me. Because I'm a part of his kingdom, I sacrifice the the idea of using all of my resources on me and I pour some back into his kingdom. Because I'm a part of his kingdom, I sacrifice in how I treat people. I sacrifice, I pour myself out. See, when Luke tells us that Jesus was born at a time where Augustus was ruling the empire, I think in a very subtle way he's asking us, who's your savior, who's your Lord? When Matthew starts out his manuscript by telling us that Herod was the ruling king of the day, I think in a subtle way he's asking us this question, who is your king? And it's a question worth answering because today, Herod's kingdom is just a pile of rocks. It's just a pile of rocks. Caesar's kingdom is a series of statues and pictures, but Jesus' kingdom will be celebrated not just this month, but really till the end of time in every nation and among every people group and really on every day of the calendar year because it is a kingdom that knows no end but it is a kingdom that does not look anything like the kingdoms of this world so maybe this season you just say for the first time i want to follow jesus and be a part of his kingdom and i encourage you to do that you just say god i choose to follow you and if you say i've done that And my challenge to you is pray for wisdom to know the areas of your life where you've climbed back on the throne and then pray for courage to step off the throne and let Jesus have his rightful place again. Heavenly Father, you are our king. We thank you for introducing us to a new kingdom and a new way of life. I pray in those areas where we have stepped back on the throne that you would give us the wisdom to know what your will for us is and your desire for us is and then give us the courage to step off and let you have your rightful place in us again. May this Christmas be a celebration of Jesus reigning and ruling on the throne of our heart and us getting to celebrate being a part of your kingdom in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting timberlakechurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.